If you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to the book of Luke. We're going to be looking today at Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Now, we are continuing our series uh, on emotions called Smoke from a Fire. And we talked about that illustration that Augustine used that says that our emotions are like smoke from a fire. They show something deeper is going on within our lives, something deeper is going on with our hearts, within our souls. And as it is a reflective of what's happening in our lives, that we can read them, understand them, and as a result, use them in a way that glorifies God. And so we've looked over the last few weeks at issues like confusion. What do we do when confusion reigns in our lives or anger or depression? And last week we looked at the issue of shame. And uh, as we talked about last week, people sometimes have a misunderstanding about shame or uh, don't really quite fully understand it. They think of it kind of on the level as guilt or just as an extreme form of guilt. But as we described it last week, shame is different than guilt. Guilt is focused on what um, what I've done. It's it's focused on the issue that I, uh, the sin that I did or the mistake that I made. Shame is focused on me. And so guilt is, in general, I did something bad. Shame is, I am something bad. As we talked last week, last week we did a, the first section. I told you it was going to be a two-week session on shame. As we talked about that, we talked about that shame can really come in two forms in our lives. One is, shame comes oftentimes after what we do. And so, if you were here last week, or you were able to be a part of this, we um, we talked about the story of David and Bathsheba and how he committed acts of adultery and then murder and then was confronted by the prophet Nathan. And we looked, as we have each week, at a psalm to kind of reflect on that in Psalm 51, where he confesses his sin to the Lord. And we talked about what it takes to overcome shame that develops from something we do. But that's not the only way that shame develops in our lives. Many times it is because of something we've done, but sometimes it's because of something done to us. Sometimes it's something traumatic that's happened in your past. Perhaps there was abuse, physical or verbal or sexual. Or you were talked to and treated in ways that communicated that you were no good or worthless or damaged. Until eventually those things kind of seeped into your life. They kind of went down into your soul and you began to believe those things about yourself. Or perhaps shame comes from something over which you have no control. A disability or a weakness. Maybe even you were a part of a divorce where your spouse walked away. No fault of your own. Maybe even something that you haven't asked for that has been kind of thrust upon your life. And as you do that, you feel this shame or unworthiness or like you're not good enough or you don't measure up. Shared many times that one of the things that is part of the story that Susan and I have, people see our lives. We've been married for 20 plus years and have four beautiful kids that we are all very thankful for, but we found out early on in our marriage that um, doctors were telling us that we would never have kids on our own. 
I remember even in those moments, that was not something that we had asked for. That was not something that was was something we sought. Obviously, it was something that was kind of thrust upon us. But the feelings of inadequacy and the feelings of of I'm not good enough and why can't and all of those just kind of rushed in. Whatever it may be in your life, from people's words to you that were hurtful and shaming to you. To something that you deal with on a daily basis that makes you think you don't quite measure up. A personality trait, a physical difficulty. Shame can seep into our lives and settle at the base of who we are. We used this quote last week and it's appropriate for what we're going to talk about today. And Christian counselor Ed Welch says this about shame. That shame is the deep sense that you are inherently flawed, unacceptable, And unworthy of love because of something you've done, something done to you, or something associated with you. And so basically what happens is because of what we've done or because of something done to us or something associated with us, we begin to think, I am defective, I am damaged, I am broken, I am flawed, I'm dirty, I'm ugly, I'm impure, I'm disgusting, I'm unlovable, I'm weak, I'm pitiful, I'm ignorant, I'm insignificant, I'm worthless. I'm unwanted. Those thoughts begin to resonate in our mind. For some of us, people have tried to use that to control us. Parents or friends or bosses or even in church, church leaders or pastors, professors, people of authority. Trying to make you feel bad about yourself as a way of getting you to do something they wanted you to do. And as that happens, you begin to feel that it's true about yourself. And sometimes that works in the short run. Sometimes that works in a short-term kind of situation. Yeah, you'll do it. You feel guilty. You feel shamed about that. And so you'll do it. But in the long run, it causes other issues in our lives. For one, when people are always critical of us, sometimes it leads to a hopeless perfectionism. We attempt to overcome our shame through a flawless performance that will be better than anybody else. We will not let failure be a part of who we are. And we work as hard as we can to get everything right and prove people wrong, exceed expectations and be someone that says, now you can't find any fault. Sometimes it shows itself, our shame shows ourselves not in that perfectionism, but in our critical attitude, in our critical speech, our criticism of others or even ourselves. You're hard on yourself, but then you're also hard on the people around you. And you begin to criticize when somebody else is doing something you don't like or an imperfection you see in them. It makes you feel better to criticize them. Sometimes it just leads to a helpless feeling. There's, there's nothing I can do about it. And so here's what I want to do today as we talk about this issue of shame, especially when it comes from something that we are not in control of, something that we are not, that has been thrust upon us or has been said to us. Is I want to do a little bit of what we did last week. I want to look at a story, this time from the New Testament and Luke chapter 8. And then I want to go back to a psalm and give you a psalm. That's part of my goal each week is if there's an emotion that you really connect with, say, man, that's something I'm struggling with or I deal with, that there's a psalm that you can go to again and again and again. And so we're going to look first in Luke chapter 8 at the story of a woman who was consumed with shame 
and shows us how Jesus lifted her from that place. Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40, says this. When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. And just then, a man named Jairus came. He was a leader of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet and pleaded with him to come to his house. Now, the interesting thing about this woman is that this woman story starts with the story of a man. Tells us when Jesus returned, he had been out. When he returned, the crowd welcomed him. And while they were there, this man came up named Jairus. And what is happening here is there is a very important contrast that is going to be set up. Jairus was a very respected man. He helped one of the top positions in the city. He was the ruler of the synagogue. And when it says he fell at Jesus' feet, imploring him to come to his house, grown men in Jewish culture did not fall at people's feet. They wore something that were like long robes. They walked very slowly and stately. They were stayed. They were reserved in their emotions. They would never run or appear to be in a hurry. And they certainly would not put themselves on the ground at another man's feet. By the way, that's one of the reasons that the story of the prodigal son is so amazing. Is it says that when he was still a long way off, the father, the stately one, the one whose emotions had been reserved, hikes up. And begins to run for the son, throwing off any care about what people think. The same is true for this man, Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, the man that was one of the most respected men in all of their society, suddenly comes and falls at the feet of Jesus. He was desperate, and it tells us why here, because he had an only daughter who was about 12 years old, and she was dying. And so he's saying to Jesus, Jesus, I need you to come. I need you to come. I have a daughter. She's dying. She's 12 years old. This is a serious thing. He is imploring and pleading and asking for him to come. As Jesus went, verse 40, continues verse 42, the people pressed around him. While he was going, the crowds were nearly crushing him. Verse 43 says, and a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years who had spent all that she had on doctors and yet could not be healed by anyone. The crowds were crushing him almost. This woman suffering for 12 years who had spent all she had on doctors and yet not could be healed was there. By the way, we know in contrast to Jairus that this woman was not well respected. Describing what she has here, suffering from bleeding for 12 years, was a nice way to to describe an issue where she had been sick, likely suffering from severe chronic pain, unable to have children, and according to Jewish law, would have been ceremonially unclean. She would not have been allowed in public places where other people were for 12 years. No public worship. No place where others could come in contact with her. It means no one has touched her for 12 years, lest they become unclean. For 12 years, she has hugged no one, and she has not had anyone lay hands on her to pray for her. No one has given her, you know, a tap on the back. Nobody has shaken her hand. Nobody has grabbed her hand. Nobody has hugged her close. Nobody's kissed her on the cheek. She's had no physical touch for 12 years. 
To put it in language that we understand a little bit better right now than we did a year ago, she's been quarantined for 12 years. Like, it's hard sometimes to preach passages like this when we don't have a frame of reference. COVID has given us a small glimpse of that because one of the things that is most difficult about COVID is the separation that we have to have from people outside of our families because we don't know how it'll spread. We don't know that you could, I don't know, play a football game on a Sunday and by the next Sunday half the team's got the virus. And so we've socially distant, a word that many of us never heard of, have heard way too much of. People are shamed now for not socially distancing. But that means that we are missing that physical touch. And when someone finds out that they've been in close contact with somebody with the disease or they themselves have the disease, they're quarantined. Now, here's the thing. People are quarantined for as long as they're sick or for about two weeks. Can you imagine if you were to contact something today and then find out you had to be quarantined for 12 years? She's an outcast. She's lonely. At one point in her life, she had to have all these hopes about her marriage, about her family, about the community. All that has been wrecked for 12 years. Luke, who was a physician himself and wrote this book, lets us know that according to the medical opinions of the day, she was incurable. What's more is he tells us that she spent her money on an entire fortune Attempting to find a cure. She had become so desperate, she would try anything. She'd call the infomercial at 1230 on TV at night. And spend whatever they asked to try to help. She tried experimentals and holistic and doctors and non-doctors. She tried it all. One last observation about this woman before we get to the meat of the story here. In contrast to Jairus, she's nameless. We don't have a name. That's intentional for her. She was hidden. She was invisible. She had shrunk into the background. Some of that was her choice. Some of that was not. But shame had driven her into the shadows. So two people have been presented to us. Jairus, who has the daughter, and this woman... Who has an issue. And you can see the contrast between them. Jairus is the ruler of the synagogue. She's not allowed anywhere near the synagogue. He was respected. She's rejected. His is a household name. Her name nobody knew. But both need Jesus to fix what's going on in their lives. He's got a daughter. Apple of his eye who is at the point of death. She's an outcast in the community with an illness. By the way, did you notice one thing that kind of brings the stories together? There's the same number of years there. So his daughter was born at the same time her issue started, 12 years. Now what's interesting here is that we see in this particular message... What keeps people like Jairus from coming to Jesus usually is overcome by Jairus' pride. He falls at his feet. He puts himself there in a place of complete vulnerability. For this woman, what normally keeps people that have suffered like that for so long is they just finally get into a place of despair and give up. But she is clinging to hope. She really represents for that community someone that is both has shame because they think of something that she's done and because of what has been thrust upon her, not of her own making. 
Now, today we realize that those kind of illnesses are not caused by sin necessarily in our lives. There are sins in our lives that can cause illnesses, but this one in particular seems not to have been caused by that, no matter what the people around her would have thought. But she may have felt that way. So this woman who is hidden and full of shame comes to Jesus. Verse 44. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. The Gospel of Mark tells us that she had heard about Jesus. And you have to wonder, what had she heard? We know that during Jesus' time, there was a legend that a Messiah would come that was so powerful that even the wings of his garments would possess healing power that came from a prophecy in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, that the Messiah would rise with a healing in his wings. Maybe she heard that and she thought, maybe it's true. Maybe if I can just touch the wings of his garment, I'll be healed. But here's her dilemma. She's not even supposed to be there. If people see her and recognize her, they will shame her even more and scorn her. And so she clandestinely, secretly, like an agent, makes her way through the crowds. And as she passes by, she reeks out and grabs the hem of his garment. Now, the verb here that says touched actually means to clutch or to grab as if a rope and pull. Like She didn't just like graze it. She went and clutched it and grabbed it. It says here instantly. I love that word. Instantly, immediately. Her bleeding stopped. It was like she pulled the rope of a bell and the healing rang out. And Jesus immediately says, who was it that touched me? Now, we, we don't think that he actually didn't know. He, we think that she was close enough. He probably knew it. And so some people say, well, why does he ask if he already knows? Well, I see this the way that you might see as a parent when you come down and you've made cookies for tonight's supper and you get down there and there's um, you get into the kitchen and there are four cookies missing. And you go in the living room and all your kids are sitting there, hypothetically speaking, on the couch, sitting nicely. And one of them has chocolate on their cheek. And you say, now, who ate the cookies? You know who ate the cookies. Amen. Right. When I was growing up, we used to stay with my grandmother during the summers. And um, uh, it was my brother and I, who my brother's five and a half years older than us. We had two uh, cousins that were girls that lived in the same community, Paige and Jennifer. And Paige was three years, was right in between my brother and, and, and I. And then I had a, a, another cousin, Jennifer, who is just uh, a few weeks younger than me. And so we had, you know, five years kind of difference. And we could call some issues for my grandmother. No, it's shocking, surprising. And when something had been done, she would try to get us confess. I remember in particular one time she asked who did this and nobody would fess up. And so she said, well, let's let's see if we can figure this out. And she had this thing called and I've, I've told if you've been around for um, the last many years that I've been here as your pastor. You've heard me use this phrase. She had what we called a she called a helping hand. It was a flat piece of wood in the shape of a hand. It was never helpful to me. And she pulled out the helping hand and she said, I'm going to have you all walk in front of me. And if you confess, I will take it easy. If you don't, I will instruct punishment on the one that it that did this. And so we each individually walked very straight up, very tensely in front of her. 
even those of us that were innocent, until my brother walked through and she, well, I can't really, I probably don't need to say what she did in today's terms. She, she hauled off and hit him with the helping hand, right? <laughs> On the rear. And I said, Granny, why did you, she goes, I knew who it was. I was just giving you a chance to admit it. Jesus says, who touched me? It's a call for her to step forward. Identify yourself. And here's the reason. It's because Jesus wanted her to know that he had something even more amazing than the fact that her medical condition had been changed. Peter tries to help. Peter usually doesn't help in these sorts of situations, but he tries to. He says, Peter said, Master, the crowds are all over. Everybody's touching you. And Peter, who has the ability to respond in profound moments with non-profound statements, you can almost hear Jesus say, thank you, Peter. What would I do without amazing insights from you? But Jesus says instead, no, somebody touch me. For I perceive power has gone out from me. What he says is, I, I know that people are touching me, Peter. I know that they're brushing up against me. But somebody touched me with a need and with purpose. Now here's the truth. It's the same thing for you. You can walk into this building, you can watch online every week for weeks, and you're brushing up against the power and the majesty and the glory and the healing power and the transformative power of Jesus. And you're just kind of brushing without touching. But then there's that week or that moment or that conversation or that song or that sermon When you don't just brush up against him, but you feel the power of the Lord. When you clutch to the hem of his garment because you are reaching out in faith in need. Verse 47 says, and when the woman saw that she was discovered, other versions say that she was not hidden anymore. She came trembling and fell down before him. In the presence, and this is an important phrase, of all the people. She declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. What happens next may be, it's one of, if not the most profound moment in the Gospels. Because it answers one of the most basic questions of faith. What happens... When we are exposed in all of our shame and ugliness and mess before a holy and perfect God. She's there completely vulnerable. And he looks at her and he says, daughter. Not stranger, not ma'am, not sister or friend, but one of the most intimate terms of endearment. Daughter, Tim Keller, who is a pastor in New York City, says that you ought to read this phrase not really as a daughter, but as sweetheart. And just so you know, that wasn't a phrase used a whole lot in that area. Okay, it's not like going to McDonald's and everybody calls you baby and sweetheart here. Okay, 
That was a term of true endearment. You would never use it to address somebody you just met. And think about what happens in that moment. The girl nobody wanted, Jesus refers to as sweetheart, as daughter. The girl no one would touch is now being embraced by the arms that shaped the stars. And the name nobody else knows, Jesus knows. He's on more than a first name basis. He's at the tender nickname stage with her. By the way, we we don't have any kind of description here that Jairus has moved his position. And so when you think about that, you've got Jairus pleading his case. But this woman for 12 years has had no one to plead her case. And he won't just let her steal a miracle in secret because he wants to do more than heal her. As great as that is, he wants to affirm her and tell her who she is. And that's what Jesus does with the unwanted. He finds us in their pain. He calls them beloved and he makes them sons and daughters. He lifts up their heads when they can't do it for themselves. And he says, go, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I saw a missionary to the Middle East say about this particular story that there's something that Western audiences often miss in this, that when they tell them in Muslim cultures that they will get, he, they say, because we don't think in terms, not, we just do not think in terms in the West anymore, which is not necessarily a bad thing of unceremonially clean or unclean, excuse me, ceremony unclean and ceremonial clean. And the, when you tell the story in a, Tradition in a culture that understands ceremonially clean and unclean. They said, how in the world could an unclean woman ever touch a holy, clean man? Let me ask you, what generally happens when unclean and clean touch? Clean becomes unclean, dirty. If I had a three-gallon jar of water up here, and I said it is 100% pure, but I'm going to drop in one tiny drop of poison in it, now would you drink it? Because it's unclean. I mean, we think about it. I've mentioned COVID already, but nobody says, you know what would it really help? What would really, those people that are suffering with COVID, COVID if we would just get a whole bunch of healthy people to go sit with them, then the healthy people would rub off on the unhealthy. That's not how we think, right? Because that's not how it works. We say don't let anybody healthy get around them. Before all this, nobody thought, boy, my kid is sick and throwing up. They've got the stomach bug. I need to send them to church and let them sit among all the healthy kids so they'll get better. Now, you may have thought that with your kid, and you may have done it once, and then the other mother's going to be, hmm, that ain't happening, Right? But when it comes to Jesus, when the unclean touches the clean, the unclean becomes pure. Jesus takes it into himself. And we're going to get to the psalm in just a moment. We're not gonna, I'm just going to give it to you today and give you a couple of things out of it. We're not going to spend a ton of time because this story was so important. But here's one thing I want you to understand. That if you are feeling insecure about who you are or your value or your worth, understand this, that the Savior of the universe did everything he could in coming to this earth and living a perfect life and dying for your sins so that your sins could be made clean by him. 
Isaiah said that he would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, but he would also carry our shame. People would hide their faces from him and consider him cursed by God. Jesus took this woman's uncleanness into himself. She went home in peace, restored to a family, and he headed toward the cross where he'd be hung in shame and forsaken by the Father. And if you ever have a question about your value before the Lord, you can look at the cross and be assured that the Lord God of the universe values you enough to literally give up His Son who died on a cross for you. And that has been the way God has talked about us throughout Scripture. When you touch Jesus in faith, when you grasp the hem of His garment in faith, He calls You, by a new name, one of my favorite parts of what happens in the book of Revelation is there's a place that says that when we get to heaven, that there will be a name that is only known to Jesus for us. That he is so specific in his love for you that there is some name that only Jesus knows about you. And it's a name of endearment. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 139. Because I want to give you this for those moments when you feel that shame or that you're not quite good enough. I want you to take these Psalms and have them and read them. And there are four things in this Psalm that I'm going to go through this very quickly because we've, we've seen this already in the story, but it's important for you to see it in your own life and not just in the story of this woman. Psalm 139 tells us how God feels about us. The first thing that we see in this passage is simply that God knows you. God knows us completely. Psalm 139 verse 1 says, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up, you understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand upon me. The wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. The first thing that we know about God and his relationship with us is that he knows everything about us. Scripture says he knows the number of hairs on our head. Right here it tells us that he knows our thoughts before we think them. He knows our words before we say them. He knows absolutely everything there is to know about you. One of the things that it's said that when people feel shame or they feel guilt or they're trying to hide from all of that, that one of the things that they most want in life is to be seen, is to be known, to be understood. Here's what I'm going to tell you about the God that I serve. The God that I serve, the one true God, knows and sees and understands you better than anyone else in the universe, including yourself. And here's what I want to tell you. And we're going to see this through the rest of this psalm. That would not be good news if the God that we serve is not a loving and gracious and compassionate God. But praise be to God, He is. The second thing we know from this passage, not only is that God knows you, but that God is pursuing you. Look at verse 7. And I just want to tell you that many times in my life, these next few verses, I have not read with hope. I have read with dread. 
But I don't think that's what's being intended here. Because the rest of this this psalm is not a psalm of dread. He says, where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or hell, you are there. If I fly on the wings of the dawn and settle down on the western horizon, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. He says, I can't escape you, God, because you are constantly pursuing me. We sang a song right before this sermon about God's reckless love. It comes, the word reckless comes from the word prodigal, the idea that God is pursuing us. And I think again of that picture of the dad running as he sees him still a far distance after the prodigal son. And it says that our God is pursuing us. Again, if God was not compassionate and loving, Gracious God, that would not be good news. But he is. The third thing that we see in this passage is not only God knows us, God is pursuing us. But God says you're awesome. Verse 13. It was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Verse 14. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. You know me. You pursue me. And you made me awesomely. And you declare me to be awesome. The human body is absolutely, unbelievably awesome the way it works the way it handles itself i think this is i know sometimes i know sometimes y'all think i I think weird connections between life and spiritual stuff all right every time i change the batteries on something i think about how awesome the human body is because you change the batteries on something the best we can do is make batteries that if I leave a flashlight on tonight it's going to be dead tomorrow morning and God made a body that continuously replenishes energy over and over again for years what that means too about this particular verse is David is writing us this isn't as human beings we are fearfully and wonderfully made awesome in the way that we are made he is saying this as individuals we are each and every individual is awesomely made because God is the creator of us all and then here's the most important thing and so uh, sometimes when people are in shame counselors said they need to be seen they need to be lifted so they need to be seen God knows us God is pursuing us they need to be lifted you are awesome you are created in a wonderful way and the third thing is they need to be stored to some sort of meaning in life and look what it says in these next verses your eyes saw me when I was formed all my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began God how precious your thoughts are if I count them there would be numbers of the grains of sand. When I wake up, I'm still with you. The point he makes here before he goes into the last part of this psalm is, God, and I know you have an unbelievable plan for me and for what you want me to do. And I want to follow you and be a part of that. And so when we think about the story of the woman in the psalm that's coming alongside of it, we know that God knows us. He looked at her and he said, daughter. 
We know God is pursuing us, that God is wanting to heal us, that he's wanting to restore us. He tells you, your faith has made you whole. And for those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ, he instills in us a purpose and a plan. And he does that because he loves us. One of the things that we say sometimes around here, one of the things that I believe is that when you come to church, it's okay to not be okay. And sometimes churches seem to be a place where you can't let people know that you're not okay. And one of the things that happens when we do that is the shame that comes into our lives is our mouth to remain because we just kind of shrink into the corners with the things that are really making us feel bad about ourselves because of what we've done or because it's been done to us or said to us. But just as this woman who tried to cower even after she grabbed the hem of the garment, Jesus wants to bring into the light the fact that he loves us and that he cares about us and he has restored us and he's healed us and he wants to push us forward into the plan he has for us. And so my prayer is that if you are dealing with those kind of worthless feelings or feelings of inadequacy, that you would trust in the truth of who Jesus is in your life. And if you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've never been saved by him, that the only place you will find true meaning is through him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the reality of your love for us that comes no matter the things that we've done in our lives that you still love us. No matter the ways we feel about ourselves, you still love us. No matter what has been said to us, you still love us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would allow us to hear and to believe the truth about who we are in your sight. We pray, Lord, that we would be people that would trust what you say about us, about who you say we are. Lord, I pray if there are those here today that need to find healing, that need to have shame and guilt wiped away from their lives, that they would come just as they are to hear from you and to be healed. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.